Psalm 145, verse 1, says, I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Al Mohler said, we were created by God to worship God forever and ever. He said, every glimpse of heaven we have in Scripture indicates that worship will be our eternal occupation. Read that again. Every glimpse of heaven we have in Scripture indicates that worship will be our eternal occupation. And it is for that purpose that we are being prepared even in the present. This morning we're going we're gonna to talk about that eternal occupation of worship. You think about in this room, we have dozens, perhaps hundreds of occupations represented. We have business owners, we have store clerks, we have people that work in restaurants, we have stay-at-home moms, we have doctors, lawyers, mechanics. We have all kinds of occupations represented in this room. But really, there is one central occupation that occupies, excuse me, that, that, that represents every single believer, and that is all of us are created to worship. That's what Isaiah 43 verse 7 indicates, that he says, I have redeemed you, I have created you for my own glory. God created us in order that we might bless him, praise him, honor him, glorify him forever and ever. And so that's what we're going to come to this morning in our text in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, there is a, there is a picture of worship that I want us to see. And what, what I want us to do is we, as we come to this text in the Old Testament history, I want us to begin by looking at really a, another picture. First of all, the picture of worship in redemptive history. And then as we sort of focus in, I want us to look at the picture that we see here in 1 Kings chapter 8 of worship. And then I want us to, to bring that across into our own life and our own families in the life of this church and to examine worship in the church. And so you have it there in your notes. I want us to begin with the picture of worship in redemptive history. And we'll start actually in 1 Kings 8 where we're at this morning. The reign of Solomon signals really the climax of Old Testament history. David indicated that last week. When we were going through the Proverbs, David did a really great job of situating the Proverbs in the life and the reign of, of Solomon, that Solomon was endowed with wisdom. You remember the, the story where he, he, just, he decides with the baby, the, the two mothers that are there fighting over this child, and he, and he has the wisdom, he displays it, and it's at that moment that it, it, it mentions that, David, that Solomon knew all sorts, over 3,000 Proverbs. And so we see that, that Solomon is sort of the representative of the high point of the Old Testament in, in the narrative that we've looked at thus far. And we see that really also in, in the story of Abraham. You remember in, in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to a pagan Abraham, Abram at the time, and, and he promises him certain things. He says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he says, I'm, if you will go, he says, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. So he promises Abram that, that one day he's going to have land. He says, not only will I give you land, we're going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make you such that those that curse you are cursed and those that bless you, they will be blessed as well. He says, I'm going to make you the channel of the blessing of God. And so in Genesis chapter 12, a foundational text, God promises Abraham three things. 
that he will give him land, that he will give him descendants, and that he will make him a blessing. A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 17, we, we read another promise that God adds to the covenant that he's already established with Abraham. He says, I'm going to make great nations come from you. Not just one nation, multiple nations. And I, will, and I will bring kings from you. And so when you put all that together, a thousand years before the reign of Solomon, God is already promising to his people that he will give them land, he will give them descendants, he will make them a blessing, and he will, give them, he will make kings come from them. And so when we come now to 1 Kings chapter 8, and this whole really broader than 1 Kings 8, just the whole beginning of this book of 1 Kings, when we come to this text, we see now that all of these promises that God made a thousand years before are coming to fulfillment in the life and reign of Solomon. God promised them land, and now they have land, more than they've ever had. God promised them descendants, and so God has multiplied the nation. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. God promises them that he will give them kings, that people will reign from the line of Abraham. And so Solomon now reigns and rules in Jerusalem. And God promises them that he will make, promises Abraham he will make them a blessing to the nations. And I want you to see this. Looking back, you're at 1 Kings 8. Just look back a couple of chapters in 1 Kings chapter 4. I want you to see how all of these promises of God are now coming to fulfillment in the life and reign of Solomon. Look at chapter 4, verse 34. Chapter 4, verse 34. We actually read this passage last week. It says, And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You see it? All the nations of the earth are now being blessed in and through this line of Abraham. You can look in our, in our passage in 1 Kings 8, but now flip over just past it to 1 Kings chapter 10. And you see the same idea that Israel is now in place, in, situ, in a situation where they are blessing the nations. People are coming to them. They are coming to the temple. They are coming to the reign and the rule of God, and they are going away with wisdom. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Chapter 10, verse 23, Then thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth, note that, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. One writer put it this way, You have God's people in God's place under God's rule and in God's blessing. That's what God had promised to Abraham. It's what we saw in the garden, it's what God promises to Abraham, and that's what we now see fulfilled in the life and reign of Solomon. God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And what I want us to take note of is now that we have come really to the high point, because from here it's bad. Now that we have come to the high point of the Old Testament, the climax of the Old Testament, what I want you to notice is that at the very heart of this reign is the worship of God. At the very heart of the reign and the rule of Solomon, the climax of the Old Testament is the worship of God. It's all that we've been driving for, all that's been pushing forward to this point. When we finally come to it, what do we find? We find in 1 Kings chapter 8, the worship of God. And you know, this makes sense. You have it there in your notes. Throughout redemptive history, worship is central. 
It's not, just in, it's not just in 1 Kings 8. It's all of the Bible. We see that worship occupies a central place in the, in, in the plan of redemption. We see, for example, in the garden that worship is evident. That worship is evident in the garden. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that they were called there to reflect and image and glorify God. And it was, there was such communion, such closeness in the garden that God, as it were, walked in the garden in the cool of the day. They experienced an intimacy with God. And so out of that intimacy, they were to reflect and radiate and image the glory of God. But that is broken in the garden. And so what we find after Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, after the, flaw, after the fall, after the image is damaged, after the, the reflection is not as bright, all the rest of Scripture is really an attempt it's a plan to reclaim what we had in the garden through Christ. And so, for example, we see that while worship was evident in the garden, worship is also prominent in the law. And so worship doesn't fade away after the, the image of God is broken, after it is damaged, that worship is prominent in the law. There are a lot of scriptures that we could look at here, but just one for you might jot, that you might jot down. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and following. God redeems the people from Egypt, and so they sing this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so all throughout the law, we see that worship is prominent. Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 bows down before the Lord. Gideon in Judges chapter 7 worships God. Hannah, in her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she worships God. David acts like a fool before the Ark of the Covenant, worshiping and glorifying God. And so worship is prominent in the law, but it's also then anticipated in the prophets. After the, after the temple is built and after the worship of God is established in a, in a firm and stable way, Eventually they go into sin, they drift into sin, so they go into exile. And what is the hope, what is the, what is the glory that is put before the people? What is it that is given to them as hope? It is things like Isaiah chapter 2. Note that, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days, Isaiah says that the mountain of the house of the Lord, in other words, Zion, that Zion shall be established as the highest of mountains. You can imagine a mountain range, and what Isaiah see, sees in this mountain range is one mountain that dominates the rest, and that is the mountain of the house of the Lord, that all the nations then will stream to the house of the Lord, and they will learn the ways of God, and God's people will teach the nations. We see it's evident in the garden, prominent in the law, anticipated in the prophets. It's elevated in the New Testament. You remember Romans chapter 12, Paul walks the church at Rome all through the glorious plan of salvation, through justification, through salvation, through glorification. He paints this great picture of salvation. And then he says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of the mercies of God. In other words, knowing what God has done, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, in the Old Testament, you brought things. Now you are the thing. Worship is elevated in the New Testament. And then finally, worship is unhindered in the end. 
Revelation 22. I want you to listen to Revelation 22. It's really the vision, the final vision that John receives. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. You can see all throughout this passage, by the way, references to the Garden of Eden, that things are back in Christ the way they ought to be. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, we see that again, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. No more frustration, no more curse. The ground is yielding forth its fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then listen to verse 3, chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So what are we going to do in heaven? You ever ask that question? You ever had anyone ask you that question? What is it that we say? What are we going to do in heaven? You know, we don't have a lot of descriptions in the Bible regarding what we're going to do in heaven. We just don't. We don't have a lot. I have a feeling that a lot of the things that we do, we will do in heaven. But we don't really have any of those in the Bible spelled out except for one. We will worship forever and ever and ever and ever we will worship. Why? Because forever and ever and ever we will know in our hearts that God is worthy of that kind of worship. We will worship forever. And that's the picture that we see in redemptive history from cover to cover, from the beginning to the end, from the laws to the gospel, from the front to the end, from the beginning to the end, we see worship. And I want to draw out the implication of that, and I think, I think it's clear to all of us. And that's simply this. If worship is central in the Bible, it must be central in our lives. If worship occupies a central place in the story of redemption, then worship must occupy a central place in the story of our lives. And that begs the question, brothers and sisters, are we worshiping? Are we giving all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, everything that we are, are we worshiping God in that way? And I don't just mean are we singing the songs, although that's part of it. But you know, we can sing the songs and in our hearts be far away from God. Because that's what, isn't that what Jesus says? He says to the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. With your lips you are near, but with your hearts you are far away. In vain do you worship me. You know, that's, a, that's a challenging, that's a, that's a, that's a frightening verse even. You think about in that day, if you were a mother or father, you would have desired for your son or your daughter, your son in particular, you would have desired for him to grow up and be like one of those men. To know the law, to know the word, to be able to teach the word of God. And Jesus said of them, with their lips they say they are near, but their hearts are far from me. 
We're not talking about just singing the songs, although that's part of it. What I'm talking about is what I think we see in, in the story of the Bible and what we see in 1 Kings chapter 8. Are our affections, are our, is our attention, are the things that we desire most, is it God or is it something else? Do we sing out of the overflow of a heart that is enraptured with God? Are we in love with Christ and out of that obey Him, worship Him, out of that have right lives, right attitudes? Or is there, is there coldness in our hearts? I'm not talking about just the outward manifestation. Is there an indifference toward God? Is there, is there God forbid, it? and apathy toward Him. It's with those questions in mind that I want us to, to move from the picture of worship in, in redemptive history to the picture of worship that we see in 1 Kings chapter 8 because it's a picture of extravagant worship. It's a picture of extravagant worship for an extravagant God. The background of, of 1 Kings chapter 8 is really Chapters 5 through 7, where we see the building of the temple. If you've been reading, you, you may have come across and you read all this, this long narrative uh, and the details that, that are included. As God instructs Solomon as they build the temple for the worship of God. And we see in that extravagant worship, namely, no expense was spared in the construction of the temple. We see extravagant worship in that no expense was spared in the construction of the temple. If you read these chapters, you'll see, for example, that the best builders were assembled. Solomon goes and he, and he brings in this man, Hiram of Tyre, who's an expert in bronze and craftsmanship. And so he brings in the very best in order to, to orchestrate and to, to be an architect for the building of the temple of God. We see also that the best materials were employed. Gold and precious metals, panels of cedar, cedar posts of olive wood, doors of cypress, on and on it goes. Enormous columns of stone overlaid with bronze. I mean, you can imagine. The glory, in fact, that, that was a common phrase, the glory of Solomon's temple, or Solomon in all of his glory. Jesus even uses that phrase. It was a great and a grand display of the glory of God. Just for, just for reference, it's roughly 50 yards in length, about 10 yards in width, and about, at some points, three stories high. So you can think almost like the end zone of, of a football field, three stories high. And for them... Coming out of the tabernacle, where that's where they had worshipped for years and decades, for, for millennia even. And so, out of that experience, which a tabernacle with goat hair on the outside, not nearly the splendor, not nearly the majesty, now they come with a majestic temple. We see that no expense was spared. We see also that no energy was reserved in the dedication of the temple. All the people were present. If you would, look in 1 Kings chapter 1. We're not going to read certainly the whole passage. It's 66 verses, but look in verse 1. Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses to the people of Israel. Verse 2, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast. Verse 3, and all the elders of Israel came and the priests took it up. You see, over and over, the, the author 
emphasizes, reminds us that all of the people are gathered, all the leadership and then certainly all of their families as well. We find that there is a feast unto God. So all the people are assembled and also we see that all the sacrifices are offered. It's an extravagant display. All the sacrifices. Look in verse 5 if you would. Look in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 8. The beginning is to lead up to the dedication of the temple. It's been built over a period of seven years. And now they are transitioning from that tabernacle setting into the setting of the temple. And so they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. It's a high point in the ceremony. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant with the, the tablets of the testimony of God. They're bringing them into the Holy of Holies. It says in verse 5, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel and who, had, and who had assembled with him were with him before the ark. Notice what it says. They were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Flip on down, if you would, in verse 62, the very end of the, pa- the, very end of the passage, the very end of the section. These kind of mirror one another, so there's worship that goes on before Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple, and then there is worship that goes on afterward. Notice in verse 62, the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot. In fact, some have have calculated that out. If if you're doing that over a seven-day period, which is what the feast was, If you're doing that over a seven-day period, if you just had one priest, and of course they had multiple priests, but if you just had one, that's a sacrifice every four seconds. You can just imagine even the sound of it. Think about that. Think of the sound of the animals and the blood that is flowing. I mean, it is an extravagant, over-the-top, an excessive celebration toward God. The best builders, the best materials, all the people, and all the sacrifices. And you know, it kind of, at least as I was reading through it, 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 it raises the question, at least in my mind, particularly as, we are, as we're in a New Testament context that's so different than a temple context, but it, it raises the question, isn't this a little bit much? I mean, think about all this gold and all of the bronze and all the the precious metals and the woods and all the craftsmanship and all the labor that has gone into this, all of the time that the people have taken to come in to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, all of the animals that are sacrificed, all the the resources that go into that. Couldn't we have just just been more simple? Shouldn't they have been more simple and just... Just had a, maybe a, a, a smaller feast and then taken that money and given to the poor? It's a similar situation. You remember, you remember in the New Testament, Jesus is about to go to the cross and his disciples are gathered around him and a woman breaks into their fellowship and she anoints Jesus with oil, with perfume. And... The disciples wonder about that, and they say, well, well, couldn't? This is expensive perfume. Why would we waste that? Why would, we, why would she do that? Couldn't that have been sold and the money then given to the poor? 
And you remember what, you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but not so with me. Now that statement strikes us as a little bit strange, a little bit un-Jesus-like. I mean, doesn't Jesus care about the poor? The fact is, Jesus isn't making, giving any commentary on the importance of the poor. Jesus is simply illustrating the importance of himself. That he is worthy of all praise, all glory, all expense even. That extravagant worship is not wasted so long as it is focused on an extravagant God. It's the same thing we see here in 1 Kings chapter 8. They pulled out all the stops. They, they built the best temple that they could build. Got the best builders, best materials. They celebrated. And then they went home, it says in verse six, verse 66, with joyful and glad hearts at all the goodness that God had showed them. They did not go home thinking, what a waste. Couldn't we have done more with our time and with our money? No, they went home even after the feast with glad hearts at all the goodness that God had shown to them. And I want to point you to the very heart of the passage. The heart of the passage is not a temple. The heart of the passage is a God. A God of mercy and grace and of glory. They conducted extravagant worship because they had an extravagant God. And we see that in a number of ways. Notice first that God shows extravagant grace by dwelling with His people. We see in this passage that, that God shows extravagant grace by dwelling with His people. When they were bringing the ark, if you look there in verses 6 and following, at the beginning of the chapters, they're bringing the ark of the Lord. It's a great celebration all, all the way up into the Holy of Holies. And so they go through the outer court, through the inner court, and finally they, they rest the ark of the covenant beneath the cherubim and the priests back their way out. And notice what it says in verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, look at what happens. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. No, don't you notice this? There's no indication. In fact, the text, I think intentionally, there's no indication that they prayed for the presence of the Lord, although they may have. There's no indication that they sang for the presence of the Lord. The text just tells us that the priest went out and the glory came down. In other words, it was the sovereign grace of God that determined, I will dwell among this people. Can you imagine, can you imagine what's going on in Solomon's heart? I mean, the pressure that he feels... I mean, just the angst as, as he spent seven years having this temple built. He's assembled all the people of God, and he's hoping down deep, I guarantee you, he's hoping, man, I hope God shows up. It's going to be really awkward if nothing happens. And I contrast that in my mind with the Tower of Babel. You remember in Genesis 11? 
how they determine that they will build a house unto God. They will build a tower, a temple, as it were, unto God. We will make, they say, a name for ourselves, and we will build a temple that reaches unto the heavens, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. The arrogance and the pride contrasted here with the grace of God determining that He will dwell among His people. That's why Solomon in verse 14 praises God. Verse 15, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you feel that? You know, it's so hard to, to, to read a prayer and to appreciate it, to read a prayer and to get the sense of it. But just imagine all that Solomon has seen, all that he has witnessed in the glory of God coming down in the temple. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my, to David, my Father, it is a reminder for Solomon, and it is a reminder for us that we enjoy the presence of God, not because anything that we have done, but because of God's sovereign grace in our lives. And that demands praise unto God. We also see that God shows extravagant faithfulness by fulfilling His Word. That God shows extravagant grace by dwelling with His people, but He shows extravagant faithfulness by fulfilling His Word. Look, read with me, if you would, in verse 23. Look at, look, at, look at, or listen to how Solomon prays in verse 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. And just for a moment, just stop right there and think about all the ways that we could fill that in. God, there is no God like you. No God like you in faithfulness. No God like you in grace. No God like you in mercy. No God like you in love. And notice how Solomon fills it in. In heaven above or earth beneath, how? Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth. Notice that phrase. Underline it. It appears twice in this text. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. What impresses Solomon is simply this, that what God says, God will do. That what God promises, God will fulfill. You think about for a moment, just all again, all that is welling up in Solomon's heart. Think about all the, all the promises that have been made a thousand years even before. God promised them a nation, and now they are one. God promised them a land, and now they inhabit it. God promised the, dwell, the, the, the presence of God, and now they see it. God promised a throne for David's son, and now Solomon sits upon it. God promised a temple, and now they worship in it. No wonder he says over in verse 56, not one word has failed of all his good promise. I love that line. Not, did you hear that? Not one word. Not even, not one sentence or not one phrase. Not one word of all God's good promise has failed. You think about all the promises that you and I make daily. All the things that we resolve to do, 
All the things that we promise our spouse, we promise our family, we promise our employer, we promise our church even. Think about all the ways that we promise and all the ways that we fail. No doubt in my own life, I can think of promise after promise that I have made years ago or maybe promises that I made a week ago that I no longer keep. But it is not so with God. Everything that God promises with His mouth, He will do with His hand. They praise God for the grace that He had shown in dwelling among them. Praise God for His faithfulness by, for, by fulfilling His word. And notice they also praise God because God shows extravagant mercy by forgiving their sins. God shows extravagant mercy by forgiving their sins. This, this text is it's arranged in what's called a chiasm. David has explained that on, on a number of occasions, I know. That really structurally, the beginning matches up with the end. So, for example, if you look, if, particularly if, if you have an ESV Bible and other Bibles, I'm sure do it as well. But if you look at the, very, at the headings, you'll see, for example, that verses 1 and following all the way down to verse 11... It includes really the lead-up to it, the sacrifices that you see. Well, then there's kind of a parallel to that. In verse 62, if you flip to the end of the chapter, where it says Solomon's sacrifices in my Bible, that that, that those sections parallel one. There's celebration, there's feasting, there are sacrifices. And so the beginning and the end mirror one another. Well, then, actually, if you go into parts 2 and parts 4, the next parts, they mirror one another as well. If you look in verse 12 down through verse 21, where it says Solomon blesses the Lord, you have the prayer of Solomon as he blesses the Lord and blesses the people. Then you have a parallel to that in verses 54 through 61. And so you see parts 1 and 5 match up. Then parts 2 and 4 match up. And then that just leaves us with the last passage, which indicates that really this is the heart of it all. That the heart of the passage is found in really verses 22 all the way down through verse 53. The of the prayer, the dedication prayer of Solomon on behalf of the people of Israel. And the essence of it, I think, is found in verse 30. Look what it says. Solomon prays, asking God that his eyes... And ears might be opened to the house of Israel, to the house of the Lord, night and day. Verse thirty, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel. Listen to the plea, and when they when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, underline this, forgive. See, it's all. It's, it's easy to miss this, I think. In, in a passage this large, 66 verses, it's easy to miss the very heart of it. You see all the activity, all the hustle and bustle, all the sacrifices, all the things that, that accompany this text. It's easy to miss that the heart of this passage is not a temple, but it is God. It's not a temple where they can worship. It's a place where they can find reconciliation and redemption before God. 
See, if you look down in verse 36, or just, or just as you can, look again in verse 34, actually. Look at the number of times. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just notice how many times you see this phrase. Verse 34, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Verse 36, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants. Again, down in verse 39, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive. And then again, as we read all the way down through verse 46, all the way down to verse 50, and forgive, or 49 actually, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Think, just think through the progression. Solomon has praised God for His grace in dwelling among them. So God has been good to dwell among them. He's praised God for His faithfulness in doing everything that His mouth had promised and fulfilling it with His hand. So He's praised God for grace and for faithfulness. And so it is as if in a moment of boldness, He says, well, let me just go ahead and say, we're gonna, it's not going to go so well for us. And whereas you have been gracious and you have been faithful, God, you know, because verse 46 says we all sin, you know that, that we're not going to be, we're not going to respond in kind. In fact, where you have been faithful, we will be faithless. I don't know about, about you, but that's an, encouraging, that's an encouraging word for me. That, that God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is rooted simply in His character expressed supremely in Jesus Christ. And so we read, for example, in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why does He do that? Well, because we're such a likable lot of people. We have so much to commend ourselves to God. Why wouldn't God like, like me? That's not at all what the text indicates. Verse 53 is the reason. Look at, look at what Solomon says. Why should, why should God hear? Why should God forgive over and over? God is faithful. They are faithless. God is faithful. They are faithless over and over and over to the point that they are removed from the promised land. But hear in heaven and forgive. Why? For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord our God that God would look down from heaven. That's what he says. And see me not in the light of my sin, but in the light of his grace. It is all of grace. All of the mercy of God. And so, what we see on the bookends of this passage, extravagant worship, all the people assembled, all offering sacrifices, so much that they could not count what was been offered. It was entirely reasonable. Why? Because God was gracious and God was faithful and God had been and would be merciful to them. That's the picture of worship that we see in 1 Kings 8, that they pulled out all the stops for a God who pulls out all the stops for us. Now I want you to to take that, and now let's move into 
into the picture of worship that we see in the church for just a moment. See, the truth is, if we see that kind of worship in the Old Testament, if we see that kind of extravagant worship in the Old Testament, and they knew but shadows of what we see as flesh and blood, if we see that kind of extravagant worship in the Old Testament, what kind of worship should we see in the New Testament? What kind of worship should we see in the church? What kind of worship should we see in our lives? Remember what the writer of Hebrews said. He said that that Jesus is the exact imprint of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, everything that was revealed of God in the Old Testament, and what we just saw, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, everything that was revealed of God in the Old Testament is embodied in Jesus in the New Testament. And so if we see grace and we see faithfulness and we see mercy in the Old Testament, we see it supremely in Jesus Christ. We see, for example, that Jesus is the embodiment of God's extravagant grace. That Jesus is the embodiment of God's extravagant grace. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. The Word there is tabernacled, dwelled among us, lived among us. The same word that would have been used for tabernacle and, tem- and, and temple. And we have beheld His glory, glory of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus was the substance of which Solomon's temple was but the shadow. And here's the beauty of it. The glory of God tabernacling among us, being present among us, is not composed or not fulfilled just in God walking around the Sea of Galilee. But by virtue of His resurrection, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, by virtue of His resurrection from the dead, Jesus has the right and the privilege to pour out His Spirit upon His people such that we now enjoy individually and as a church, we now enjoy the very presence of God. It is, as it were, that we are little Solomon's temples walking around. That the glory of God dwells in us. Now, if we're casual about that, we don't understand the glory of God. If we just say, yeah, Jesus is in me and and can move on, we don't understand what it means for for the God of the universe, full of grace and truth, to not kill us, but rather to indwell us. It is all of grace. Extravagant grace in Christ. We also see extravagant faithfulness in Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of God's extravagant faithfulness. Think through, if you will, just just through, as we've seen, even up to this point of of the history or the, the story of God redeeming a people in the garden in Genesis chapter 3.15. In the midst of the curse of Adam and Eve and the serpent, there is this promise that is given. Simply this, 
says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God does that in Jesus. We see, for example, that, that God promises to bless the nations through Abraham, through his seed, and he does it in Jesus. We see, for example, that God promises Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, says, I will raise up from among your brothers a prophet who will speak the words of God, and you will listen to him. And God has raised up that prophet in Jesus. God promised, David said, you will never lack for a son to sit upon your throne. And God has given us a king in Jesus to sit upon David's throne. He has promised, for example, in the book of Isaiah, you will have a Messiah, and he will take away the sins from the people. And so when we open up the New Testament and we open up the Gospel of John, we hear John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God has promised a temple in the Old Testament. He promised Ezekiel a place where reconciliation and redemption could take place. And we find it who? Where? In Jesus. That's why Paul would say, All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. It's as if all of these promises that we find in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, all the prophets, all these promises are sort of just loose ends all the way out through the Old Testament, and it ends, and Jesus comes in the Gospels, and He pulls all of them into Himself. And so Paul would say, for example, that Jesus is our wisdom. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Or when Jesus, who is your life, shall appear. Or that all the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of heaven even, are found in Christ. Everything we have, everything we need, is found in a faithful Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God, of God's extravagant grace. He is the embodiment of God's extravagant faithfulness. And last, He is the embodiment of God's extravagant mercy. The heart of the temple. The heart of the temple was not a building. It was a place where, as we see at the heart of the passage, where God would hear and God would forgive. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we now have peace with God. We are reconciled to God, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that we have now. Brothers and sisters, we have God, is, God does not regard us any longer as rebels. But God regards us as sons and daughters, joint heirs with Jesus. So now we have unhindered access. In fact, we are invited to come boldly into the throne of grace. And how do we have this? We do not have it by silver and gold. We have it by shed blood on a cross. That Jesus took our sin, He took our guilt, our punishment, He bore the wrath of God that was due my sin, and He bore it on the cross so that we now 
have access unto God. What extravagant grace, faithfulness, and mercy we see in Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, and they would worship in that temple in that way for faithfulness, grace, and mercy, and we see in the New Testament a greater display of it on our behalf, how much more should we worship? The extravagant Savior that we know as Jesus the extravagant Savior demands, then, an extravagant response. The extravagant Savior demands an extravagant response. And we see it, I think, outlined, at least typified in, in Solomon's prayer in verses 54 down through 61. How do we respond to a God like this? How do, we, how do you respond to extravagant grace extravagant faithfulness, extravagant mercy at the cost of of the blood of God's own Son. How do we respond, first of all, with heartfelt praise for God's faithfulness? Look at verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel. If they found rest, how much more have we found rest? He says, Not one word has failed of all His good promise, which He spoke by Moses, His servant. The reality is this, God is worthy of our praise for His faithfulness. God is worthy of all of our praise, collectively and as an individual. I love Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C. I was listening to him speak a month or two ago, and, and uh, he was, they were asking me, how, 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 Mark, how do you continually preach the gospel to yourself? How do you remind yourself? How do you stir up in your own heart affections toward God, His grace and His mercy? He said, well, one of, the, one of the simple ways that I do that is the way that I respond to a greeting. He said, people, obviously, just like we experience, ask me, Mark, how are you doing? He said, I, I make it a habit as much as I can, as much as I remember, to always respond to that in this way, better than I deserve. He said, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be different. He said, it's just a subtle way for me to remind myself that everything that I have is attributed to the grace and mercy of Christ. And so that then begs the question, are we proclaiming God's faithfulness on a regular basis? Let me ask you a question. Are you regularly, do you regularly rehearse the goodness and mercy and grace of God to your own soul? Do you oftentimes take time, meditate upon God's goodness toward you, supremely seen in Christ? We ought to do that first in our own souls, and then as that rises up in our hearts, then we proclaim it to the world on a regular basis. You remember Peter and the disciples in Acts chapter 4, they said, well, you can't speak about this Messiah anymore. It's causing too much trouble. And, and so they respond to the leadership, to the Jewish, Jewish leadership there, and they say, well, whether it's right for us to speak, whether it's right for us to obey you or God, well, you'll have to judge for yourselves. But as for us, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen 
and what we have heard. And I would ask the same question for us. What has God done for you? Give me a home, give me water, give me food. Praise the Lord for His goodness toward us. But above all, He has saved our souls from an eternal hell. How can we be silent about that? Part of our worship is what we see here. Solomon, bless the Lord. And not a generic, well, bless God. Bless Him for all that He has done supremely in Christ. Heartfelt praise for God's faithfulness. Number two, wholehearted devotion to God's Word. Look at verse 61. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord, our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as, to, as this day. The reality is this. God is worthy of our obedience. Not partial obedience, not a lot of obedience, our total obedience. Every thought, every action, every word, every deed, every day, every hour. How do we respond to a God who has been so good to us? One of the ways that we are taught to respond here is we obey God. And so the question is, are we obeying God's Word in every respect? Are we obeying God's Word in every respect? Out beside that, verses 57 and 58. Listen to what Solomon prays. May He not leave us or forsake us, that He may incline our hearts to Him. Do you hear that? Even our obedience, we need to pray for that. It's not, oh, God has saved me, now I'll obey Him. God has saved me, God, would you help me obey you? And so we ask the question, are we praying for right hearts? Are we praying for right hearts? But then it's not just, oh, well, I prayed, and you know, I just kept doing that. No. Are we pursuing righteous lives? There is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side. Finally, continual dependence upon the mercies of God. How do we respond? What, what, what is an extravagant what does an extravagant response look like? It looks like heartfelt praise to God. It looks like wholehearted devotion to God's Word. And last, it looks like continual dependence upon the mercies of God. Look in verses 59 through 60 as we close. He said, Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may He maintain the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel. You hear that? Pleading for the mercies of God. Why? Verse 60, That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. The reality is we are continually in need of God's mercy. We are continually in need of God's mercy. The worst response, hear me brothers and sisters, the worst response to God's past mercies is to act as if we don't need God's present mercies. We always need the mercies of God. I was saved and I still need to be saved. 
delivered further and further and further from the power of sin, from the power of idolatry, more conformity to Christ, more compassion, less pride, more love, less self-sufficiency. And the beauty of it is when God changes us and conforms us more into the image of Christ, that is how all the peoples know that the Lord is God. We want, do we not? I think we sang it this morning. This church, by God's grace, wants all the nations to know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And so let us then pray to the God of heaven that He would so transform our lives that people would say, surely God is at work. The question is, are we pleading for God's saving work in our lives? For such a transformation that all the world will know. That's the picture of, of extravagant worship that we see. In the Bible, in this high point in the Old Testament, and then in the church. And so as the worship team comes out, I want to I give us an opportunity to respond to God's Word. And as they're coming out, I, I would like to ask you a very simple question. And so, so if we could just hang on for just a minute, just, just one question. Are you worshiping God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind. John Piper said this. He said, Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of His worth. He said, The engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. And listen to this line. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. Where feelings for God are dead, Worship is dead. And so I would ask you, what about your affections for God this morning? Are they being, are they being crowded out by other affections? For all that the world would put before us, for pride and for arrogance and for money and for fame and for success and for comfort and for stability, all that the table that the world sets before us, are our affections there or are they on God? So this morning, it's my prayer in my heart, in my, my life, my family, and in this church that we would have affections, true affections for God deeply rooted in God's faithfulness, God's grace toward us, God's mercy toward us, expressed supremely in Christ, that our affections would run down so deep in that direction that it would then be the natural response that we will give extravagant worship unto God.